He's gonna take you back to the past to play the shitty games and so good. He'd rather have a buffalo take a diarrhea dump in his ear. He'd rather eat the rotten asshole of a roadkill road skunk. skunk or down it with beer. He's the angriest gamer you've ever heard. He's the angry Nintendo nerd. He's the angry Atari Sega nerd. Uh, oh, that's like Atari He's the angry Sega CDI. Video game nerd. Yeah. <laughs> I swear oh. there's like a version out there that he does. I think, I think Kyle's the name of the guy who does the theme song. But James Kyle did- Justin, I believe. Yeah. But James doesn't sing, so I'm pretty sure there's, like, a version out there that I recall where, like, he does the same thing I was just doing where he kind of speaks the lyrics. It's interesting. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Screen Wings, the only podcast. This is Um, the only one. Today we're going to be talking about The Fog, directed by John Carpenter, released 1980. And The Last Black Man in San Francisco, directed by Joe Talbot. Yep. Uh, released last year, 2019. Yeah. Uh, I'd say that before, it accurately sums it up. Yeah. But before that, as always, we're just going to chill out for a second, get our bearings, and talk about what we've been doing this last week. Um, obviously, this this whole thing still going on. I've still been just at home, kind of chilling, watching a fuck ton of stuff. Ugh. Um, and I'm sure Thomas has been doing something similar, but I haven't talked to him in a week, so let's let's talk. Thomas, what's Hello. going on? Uh, I've been rereading some One Piece. Oh! Oh, yeah. Epic as always. Um, been playing some Fortnite. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. That, um... I usually, like, hop on and game with Lucero for a couple hours a day, or Jordan an hour a day. Um, depends on the day. But, uh, yeah, just just mostly a lot of gaming. Uh, and playing, uh, I started a little bit of Kingdom Come Deliverance. Um, games. Oh, how is that? Um, I'm not, like... I haven't progressed super far. I've basically just kind of like explored this first town you're in and kind of messed around with the mechanics and the different things you can do in it. Um, it's interesting. I'm I'm enjoying it so far, and I plan on playing more. Uh, I remember that game was releasing when I was working at GameStop, and I almost picked it up, but then I'm like, wait, I don't have any money. <sighs> was probably a wise decision then. Um... I also picked up Final Fantasy for, um, I only played like the first five minutes of it, uh, cause I just picked it up like yesterday and I wanted to watch the movies before I got super into it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying that so far. Um, I'm going to try to like beat that one. And then by time, uh, what'd you, what'd you buy it on steam? Oh, okay. I yeah. didn't know Final Fantasy four was on steam. Yeah, they've. I'm pretty sure they've got. They might have all of them except for the first two, at least of like main number titles. Um, 
Uh, my first introduction to Final Fantasy IV was, I I want to say the DS version. I think that's what this is, because it's not like the, because I know the game originally came out over here on the Super the Nintendo. Super Nintendo. And yeah, that's the DS version. That's a good, I remember really liking Final Fantasy IV. Uh, supposedly, like, the story in it and the characters are all, like, really good. And I'm digging, like, the direction it's heading so far. Like, the- Whenever, I don't think I ever beat it. Honestly, <laughs> it's $16! I'm not gonna buy a fucking Final Fantasy game that's a thousand years old for $16. Yeah. But if it goes on sale, I might pick it up. Yeah. I, I am a fan of that game. But, uh, yeah. No, it was fun. I plan on definitely playing more of it. I want to get more into the Final Fantasy games. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of some of them. That's, that's kind of what, <laughs> what I hear. Um, so I'll probably play, like, a few that people recommend, since I know, like, most of them take place in, like, completely different universes. I don't necessarily need to play them in order or anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like, uh, I think I've, I, I also haven't played, I've played a bit of 7 and a bit of 8, but not a ton, but, like, I've played a decent amount of 4, and I think the only one I've beaten is 10, and I, I've i gotten really far in 12, like, wow. I just, I'm just all over the place, and, like, I've tried to play through 1, but I just, like, don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, to to my understanding, the first three are pretty like just generic bad yeah, guy like, versus sure, good um, guy narratives. Three, which is uh, the the one that's Final Fantasy three here, which was Final Fantasy six in Japan, if I remember correctly, is supposed to be like one of the best. I haven't played it. I had that one on DS as a kid, but I never got into it, obviously. Um, yeah, it's like, I remember liking Final Fantasy IV when I was a kid, but the thing is, I sucked at video games. Yeah, same here. So I was like, I can't, I can't beat, I can't beat it! I just remember, like, starting it, and it, like, plops me right in the middle of this, just, like, narrative, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I just never played it, so... Where am I? You didn't explain things well enough. I'm confused. <laughs> oh. No, but that's, that's, that's good. That's good to hear. Honestly, that makes me want to go play it, because I have 12. I bought it for the... I bought the PS4 re-release. Mm. And I played it for, like, five or six hours, and then I just stopped playing, and I'm like, fuck, why do I always do this? Yeah. <laughs> I always do this, and then I just, like, so hard to get back into games, especially, like, open-world RPGs like that, because I'm just like, what the fuck was I supposed to be doing right now? Oh, I totally get it. I always start, like, open-world RPGs, and I'll play, like, a couple hours, and then I'll, like, put it down for a week, and I'll be like, oh, man, I want to play it, but I kind of want to, like, restart it. You get the fucking- That's what happened with me with uh, The Witcher 3 so many times. Mm. I'd try to play it, and I'd start it and play like an hour and a half. And then, 
leave and come back like two months later and be like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. And I, I like had no idea how the combat system worked anymore. And ah. so I'm just like, well, got to restart. And I'm so glad I finally did like, because once I actually got into it and I played like three hours and I just like played it all in like two settings pretty much. Mm. I'm taking, when I do eventually play the Witcher games, I'm taking the, uh, unpopular approach and I'm playing the first two first since I have them on Steam. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hopefully finally fucking play one of them. I've tried to play two, it's just like, they're so annoying to play. Apparently, like, the first one is, like, just running back and forth in a swap the entire game and it's like, oh, boy. Yeah, I haven't even played the first, but I've, like, I've tried to play the second I've been like, this is... This is so hard. <laughs> this yeah. is so annoying. We'll we'll see if I'll have the patience for it or if I'll just fucking eventually skip to the third one. Cause I do want to play them. Oh. Third one's fantastic. The third one's still probably like it might be my favorite video. <laughs> I love the third one. Or at the very least it's in my top three. I hear a lot of people express, like, that level of love for the third one, so I figure it must be a pretty good game. Definitely at least yeah, worth checking out. I've played it through, like, two or three times now. Oh, nice. <sighs> but, yeah, any any other gaming, or mostly those, those guys? Uh, mostly just that, like, I've played, like, a little bit of, like, the Resident Evil Resistance, which... Yeah, I don't know what I said about that game. Is that game. the multiplayer one? Yeah, I don't know what I said about it last week, but it totally fucking sucks. <laughs> okay. I was like, wow, Thomas likes that. I was, I was like, that's surprising, because most people, it seems pretty, like, middling to poor reception. <laughs> like, I acknowledge that they needed to, like, add more to it, but as I'm playing yeah. it, because, like, the first like couple of days we were playing it, we were doing pretty alright, and we were getting teamed up with like other survivors and we were doing decent but yeah like the last like few days we've been playing we've just gotten like the most brain dead players and that's coming from me i'm terrible at video games and (laughs) we've gone up against like the masterminds who are just like way too fucking overpowered sometimes and it's like god damn this game sucks maybe they'll add more to it but level it out a bit more but for now it sucks oh any any other watches or mostly just manga and video games mostly just manga video games random youtube random youtube yeah well i uh i i watched a lot um i finished gundam oh yeah it's the first series how how was it it's I, it's the it's so it's so good. God, I I'm like I'm a it. really big fan of like seventies and eighties anime though, so I knew like I was gonna really like. But it's probably like it's oh, one of my favorite anime. Uh, there's another show he does. The same director as Gundam that's supposedly like really good. I think it's uh, it's something Edeon. I think. Let me look it up. Oh. oh, God, what is that? It's my phone. 
Oh god! I'm getting it's a- your phone! Oh god! Hold on, I'm getting that call real quick. This might be a work-related thing. Let me pick it up real quick. Okay. Time out, guys. Alright, uh, Thomas got a call. Um, he has um, a lost a long-lost uncle he never knew about. He's actually, uh, as soon as this whole thing is uh, over, he's going to go visit him. Uh, he lives in Iceland, and it turns out that Thomas is the... He's, he's next in line to become the king of Iceland. Oh. Apparently. So congratulations, Thomas. Never been. I'm so Ooh. honored that I can be there, Kane. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other show that he did was Space Runaway Ideon, is yes. I think the one you were thinking of, which I've heard really good things about, and I know there's two movies for that, and I'm pretty sure, from what I've heard, the first is, like, really, really good. Okay. He's done a lot of other stuff. Obviously, he was the showrunner for, uh, Zeta Gundam. Yeah. And I believe Double Zeta. I think um, so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he had his hands involved with all the main, like, core beats of yeah, the he, original series. Yeah, like, I don't... <laughs> pretty much up until, like... I'm, I'm guessing he didn't do... I don't think he did Unicorn, but, like... He was doing, like, all the Gundam stuff until, like, 2005 or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, Gundam's fucking great. I'm gonna watch the, uh, recap film soon, because I want to see how they hold up. I'm excited to watch the third one. Um, I was talking to Pierre about it, and apparently that has, like, 70% new animation, pretty much. Hmm. Let me know, uh, what you think of the third one and how it stacks up to, like, the last few episodes of the series. That way I know. Whether I should just watch it or if I should just watch the last, like, handful of episodes of the series. I, I have a feeling it's probably going to be, like, the Berserk films where, like, the third one's, like, really fucking good. I hope so. <laughs> and the other two are, like, okay just because of, like, the pacing issues yeah. that'll come up. But we'll see. Oh. Um, let's see. I watched that. I was going to watch more Celine Sciamma films, but I just didn't have time. I was watching so much other stuff, because we're still watching. We're doing our little quarantine watch party stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we've been watching uh, at least a movie a day for that. Um, I also watched a movie called Columbus, which uh, I've been meaning to watch for quite a while. And that was Fucking amazing. Uh, that guy sounds named familiar. Kogonada, who was like a... He was like really well known for his like video essays and stuff. And he does a lot of like video essays for like the Criterion channel, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Like, um... But his, that was his uh, debut film. It came out in 2017. It has John Cho in it. But that's... That he- movie was fucking great. Um... And then we finally watched the second Gamera movie in the trilogy um, from the 80s, or the 90s, my bad. Oh, nice. Uh, I was hoping I was going to like it more, because I liked the first one enough, and I'd heard this one was better, but I uh, ended up just thinking it was really boring. <laughs> uh, I've seen, like, uh, like video review of the 90s Gamera movies, and... 
Is it the second one or the third one that has, like, the girl who finds the monster? That doesn't sound familiar. It's probably the third one. I mean, there's a girl who talks to Gamera in the first one. It's not Gamera. It's, like, a different monster. Oh, um... I, I'm pretty sure that's the third one, then, I'm guessing. Okay. Yeah, it's like it's a like really weird like monster. Bug, uh, bug aliens that are like, there's a bunch of tiny little bug aliens, and then they become a giant bug alien. Ah. I like the design of the monster, I just didn't like the movie. If, yeah, uh, fair. But do you know what we watched right after that? Uh, no. What? The Emoji Movie. With T.J. Miller? American Funny Man? If I'm gonna be completely honest, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Like, Uh, it was really bad, but, like, I was was going into it expecting, like, oh, this is gonna be, like, because everyone fucking memes on it, oh, this is the worst movie ever made, and it was just, like, it was just a bad animated movie. I mean, yeah. Like, most of it wasn't, like, aggressively bad. It was, like, it was short. It, it was well animated because the animation team's pretty good. And, like, the pacing was fine. Like, I was never bored with the film, and then it was over. And I just kind of left. And I was like, well, that was really bad, but not nearly as bad as I was hoping for. It's kind of disappointing. Makes sense. I feel like more people were upset with uh, the concept as opposed to the actual content of the movie. Yeah. Um, my buddy Jojo picked a movie, a documentary to watch that I've been meaning to watch for a long time. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, the Act of Killing. The Act of Killing. That sounds really familiar. Let me look it up real quick. Uh, we watched Director's Cut which adds, like, almost an hour to the runtime, making it close to three hours. It's it's uh, produced by Werner Herzog and fucking Errol Morris. Okay. I've heard the title, but I don't think I've ever seen anything from it based off what I'm looking at here. Ah, Looks pretty uh, interesting, though. It's It's really good. It's, like, really hard to stomach, though. <laughs> Oh, gosh. It's about fucking, um... So they go to Indo- Indonesia where, like, in... Uh, I think... What was it? The 70s? 60s? I can't remember the exact year, but there was, like, a huge wave of, like, mass executions against accused communists. Like, that, like, over a million people died. And most of them were not communists in the slightest. Ah, uh, of course. Which doesn't matter either way. Like, they didn't deserve to die either way. But, um, and it was legal at the time. So these people are still just walking the streets. Most of them are like in their seven, in their eighties now. And it's, it's a documentary that literally the, the subjects are those people and they're talking about them and they're like bragging about how they kill those people. And then, uh, what they do is they, uh, recreate their murders, like, in a more cinematic way for the documentary. And it's, it's fucked up, but it's huh. really, really good. That sounds like a 
quite the experience. Um, there's a uh, by this director named Joshua Oppenheimer. He did a follow up two years later called The Look of Silence, which I've heard is pretty much just as powerful. It's on the flip side of things. So instead of like focusing on the murderers, it's talking about the, like the family that's sur- like of survivors pretty much. Huh. So I've been, I'm going to watch that one soon. I just need to, the, the act of killing literally like broke me. It took me like five hours to even like function enough to like write a small review for it. Oh gosh. The good news is that everything after that was pretty, pretty lighthearted to, to chill. Uh, we watched the Cowboy Bebop movie. Oh, which, nice. Uh, have you seen that one? No, I've always, I've only seen like a half of the series, and it's been okay. on my like to go back through lists and finish off because I know that the movie I'm takes place like, right before the series like wraps up or whatever. Yeah, I think. It's like two episodes before the finale or something. Um, but I, I, I'm a fan of Cowboy Bebop. I don't think it's like amazing, like as amazing as some people hold it in regards to, which is fine. Like yeah. I'm just going to enjoy things that some people won't and vice versa. But I, I really liked the movie. It was fun. It wasn't like amazing, but I had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> then the next day, at like 6 a.m., I stayed up all night and I randomly... Uh, somebody on that I follow on Letterboxd randomly reviewed this hour-long uh, documentary called Carts of Darkness. Carts? That's on Amazon Prime Video. Carts of Darkness. Huh. Like shopping carts. Because it's about, it's about these, like, homeless people in uh, northern Vancouver, Canada, uh, who, like, just take shopping carts and they, they go around pick up, like, recycling and stuff and sell it, and that's how they make their living. But then it also looks at a subsection of people that use shopping carts as, like, extreme sports vehicles, and they'll, like, fill them with, like, bricks or, like, a bunch of heavy shit and, like, fly down fucking hills on them going, like, 50 miles an hour. Hmm. It's it's weird, but it was a pretty good documentary. It's... It's, like, super independent. Like, I, I, they probably spent, like, no money on it, but it was fun. Oh, okay. Oh, that sounds like an interesting little flick. Uh, the only other big, like, things I watched were, uh, we, we rewatch. I rewatched Stop Making Sense, which was that, uh, Talking Heads concert film I was talking about, like, uh, a month ago, and I was like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah. And I continue to say, this is the best thing ever. Huh. Um, and we rewatched Paprika last night. Oh, I still haven't seen Paprika. Oh, Paprika's so Paprika's like my second or third favorite anime film. It's so fucking good. I can guarantee now it's going to be on my top fifty. <laughs> like I guarantee you that. Okay. So there's a little spoiler for you. Mm. Oh. Um. Um. And then. There's, you know, we watched other stuff, but I'm not going to bore you with everything I watched. Mm. Oh, I did watch The Umbrellas of Chabor as well, as, um, which is a French musical by Jacques Demy. Yeah, I don't like you it. Know, Agnes that. Varda's uh, husband. Oh, 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that—that's his. That was his like big film. That's his like most notable film, and it was fantastic as well. Oh, okay. I thought you were gonna so, the pause there scared me for a second. No, it was really good. Like I, I was expecting to like it because I really like Donkey Skin, the only one I had seen from him. But it was like exponentially better. Hmm. I'll have to add that would be yeah, watch list. That's that's what I watched. But and I know I last week I also said I was going to try to watch Gunbuster, but I just got so enraptured with the other stuff. Hmm. But this week I'm gonna watch Gunbuster. Oh, nice. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, you ready for some questions? Absolutely. All right, we got some from Pierre today. Oh boy. Yeah. First question. What are your favorite things to make for breakfast? Uh, I like... I'm a simple man. I like uh, some scrambled eggs. Uh, some toast. Maybe some hash browns. Yeah. Whoa. Um, I, I really like a nice bowl of cereal. But no, if I'm like actually making breakfast, it's not just a bowl of cereal. I also will make scrambled eggs, but I'll put it in a tortilla, put some hot sauce on it, and eat it like a little, my own little breakfast burrito. I like to have a lot of spice in my breakfast if I make them, because it helps to like wake me up. Mm. Because I'm always fucking so tired. I feel it. Me too. So I, I also just, if I make food, I just put a lot of spicy shit on it like regardless of the time of day <laughs> hmm. just like time to time to eat spicy food um, I do I am a fan of toast I'm a fan of pancakes and waffles as well but that's like a thing that I like to eat like once every two weeks like hmm. my little breakfast burrito I can eat every day <laughs> I don't know what it is I don't I don't really care for pancakes I I can handle like I like waffles, and I acknowledge that they're pretty much the same thing, just kind of, like, different textures and shapes. Yeah, I mean, like, the crispiness does, like, cha- well, you know, textures do change flavors, like, it's, you know, so yeah. I, I get it. Um, but yeah, even then, it's only, like, a every once in a while kind of thing. Yeah, I don't I feel them that. super often. Alright, here's the more important question. Uh, if you could hang out with Tony Hawk for a day, what activity would you like to do? Um, oh man, I don't know. I'd be like, Tony, what do you want to do? And then he'd probably retort with skating, I'd guess. Maybe, maybe he's done with skating. I don't know. I, to be fair, I haven't kept up with Tony Hawk over the years. But uh, I'm not a skater. There was just a there was just a small. It went to some small film festival pretty recently. But there was a documentary that was just recently made about uh, the first Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game. Oh, really? And I'm really excited to watch that eventually. I don't think it's been picked up by anyone yet, but I, I really want to see it. Huh? Yeah, that sounds pretty uh, interesting. I, I'm also not a big skater, which is unfortunate because my brother was. My brother's always skated, like, his whole life, so it's like, I'd probably just be like, come on, Tony, let's go drive down and see my brother. Fair. And then we can all play Tony Hawk Pro Skater together, because I like (laughs) the video games, I'm just, I've just never really been able to skate, because I suck at every physical thing I've ever tried to do. Uh, Same here. 
And, um, all right. And the final question is, uh, regarding Mr. David Lynch. Um, do you think that Mr. Lynch is getting enough sunlight? Has anyone confirmed that he is still alive? Um, actually, there was an interview just a couple days ago with Mr. David Lynch. Or I don't know if it was necessarily an interview, but he, he made a statement being like, you know, after, after this is all over, I think hopefully that we're all going to be a, a lot more empathetic to each other. So, ah. you know, he's, 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 he has us in our thoughts and I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Lynch. Yes, and regarding you. the sunlight, I'm sure he's fucking doing his weird, he's doing yoga and his spiritual practices outside every day. Guaranteed. And then I bet he goes Probably outside is- onto his porch, enjoys some sunlight, smokes a, and smokes a big old cigarette. Cigarette and drinks some coffee and then does yoga. Yep. Sounds like an accurate uh, sum up of uh, what he would be doing. <laughs> Man, we need to get Mr. David Lynch on the podcast. Hey, Mr. David Lynch. Uh, nobody listens to our podcast except for a guy that hates you. Yeah. Want to be a <laughs> We got Hey, we got some people in uh, Germany and uh, what was the other place you said? Peru. Peru. Oh, yeah. Peru. Yeah. Woo. Woo. Thanks, guys. Hey, if you're listening to us from Peru, yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Same from me. All right. Well, I think that that about sums it up, and it's about time to talk about the fog. The fog. You uh, know, our lineup for today actually reminds me a lot of our lineup from last week. Yeah, it's like one really good movie and one kind of like B horror movie. <laughs> Except I like this one a lot more than the one we watched last week. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say this one was much more uh, well-produced for starters. Yeah, instead of being made for 5,000, what was it 500 or 5,000? It was like no money. It was like 500. It was made for like, a million dollars. IMDb. <laughs> Um, Which a million dollars is still pretty low for like a film going in the theaters. But. Hey, I bet I bet John Carpenter could have could have uh, afforded at least four lights for this film. So yeah, that's already- I I actually can tell that there are at least four lights, <laughs> maybe five. It's um, <laughs> quite a few. But yeah, this this movie's this movie's funky. I like I like the tone of this movie a lot. I guess we'll talk about that after we. We talk about the movie itself. So, yeah. uh, this movie takes place in a small coastal town in California called Antonio Bay. Um, and it's about to celebrate its 100th anniversary. But, uh, like, right before that, before anything happens, we open up on an old, like, I don't know, he looks like an old sea captain, and he's, like, regaling some, like, horror stories to a bunch of kids by a campfire. Yes. Um, and he says that on April 21st, which is an eight, which is the day after this podcast releases. Oh, shit. <laughs> Fuck. Um, 
you know, the, the fog will roll in and people will perish, pretty much. That's pretty much what he says. Yeah. He says exactly what's going to happen in the movie. He describes a scary death in the black, vacant ocean <laughs> to, like, these children. He's like, you know, they sink back into the void of nothingness with, like, salt water filling their lungs. Their eyes wide open. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and he doesn't it, it's like funny because normally in scenes like this you'll see like it's like the adult trying to like scare the shit out of the kids for fun but he looks like remorseful while he's saying it. he's like no these kids need to know and it's just it's such a they funny need little to scene know. Uh, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that like I think are just really funny <laughs> Because of like the the tone it goes for, like it feels kind of weird and lighthearted and jovial. But in this scene, it's just like, oh, someone's getting stabbed in the face, yeah, <laughs> like in front of. Like, there's this. I get old time later. There's a scene later on revolving this kid that I like. I laughed really loud at. Uh, so then we cut to uh, a priest in the church. Uh, his name's Father Malone. Post Malone's dad. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> thanks for laughing at my joke, Hinatea didn't. I was like, that's a good joke. Yeah. Uh, so he's just kind of hanging out in his church like priests do. They don't ever leave. They just kind of hang out. Look at the walls. Um, when suddenly a piece of like brick just falls from the wall, yeah, and behind it he finds a journal that is from 1880, and it uh, it re- it tells the story of how the founders of this is kind of explained throughout the whole thing, but I'm just going to explain it now. Um, yeah. So the the founders of Antonio Bay, there were six founders. They uh, deliberately sank a a boat named the Elizabeth Dane that was uh, filled with um, people that were afflicted with leprosy, and the the owner his, was named something Blake. I can't remember his first name, but Blake. Uh, he was like this this rich guy, and he was like, "I'm just gonna go establish a colony for people with leprosy nearby." And he, like, told um, Father Malone's great-grandfather or grandfather. And then they they sank the boat to take all the gold because this guy was rich. And they founded the town on this plundered gold. Yeah. And they used, like, the sinking of the uh, boat as, like, this catalyst symbol for their town. And they celebrate it. Um, this yeah. Spike- how fucked up it actually is. And it was like, uh, the the town had just, like, they had told a lie, pretty much. They'd been like, we touted the town. What did they say that they, like, because the, the singing of the ship was part of the town, right? Like, it was part of the history of the town? Like, people knew that they sunk the ship? Um, I don't think people knew that they sunk the ship, but they knew that the ship sunk, and they view it as this, like, tragedy that brought them all together kind of thing. Um, When in reality, they caused it. You know, it was a... a, I guess false flag wouldn't be the right term, because they weren't going to war, but something to get the people behind them. 
propaganda. Oh, yes. Um, so that means that I believe it's that night. It's about to be the 21st. It's the 20th, I think. Yeah. And it's between um, the hours of midnight and 1 a.m. And then we cut to these three guys. They're out at sea. They're just kind of drinking beer and fishing. Um, and then suddenly a, a bright fog appears. And yeah. the Elizabeth Dane shows up. This this ghost ship. Um, and they're and listening. They, they see it for like a split second. And they're like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. They're listening to the radio where they hear the warning of the fog ultimately. Because... Um, the lady who runs this radio station, whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, uh, the character's name. Stevie. Stevie. Stevie Wing. Yeah, so Stevie, uh, she gets, like, these calls from this guy um, who basically, like, fills her in on, like, the weather, and she kind of, like, reports on it. And she reports on the fog that night, and that becomes, like, an important key plot because she becomes kind of, like, a main player from this point on. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that was John Carpenter's wife. Really, I didn't know that. Yep, uh, um, this was actually her feature film debut. Um, she had been in one of his TV movies, "Somebody's Watch" or "Someone's Watching Me," but before that, she was mostly a television actress. They get divorced shortly after making the movie. I don't know why. I was going to say that, <laughs> that. I don't know. I, that just always seems to be like a trend with like directors who like. Um, no, she was she was in a lot of um, like she was in. No, I guess I guess Escape from New York was literally the year after um, she got divorced. Oh, she married like a year before this movie was made, and she divorced them, or they got divorced in eighty four. So they were only together five years. Okay. Huh. Same year he made Starman, which I have not seen, but I've heard pretty good things. I've heard pretty good things about like most of eighty five percent of John Carpenter films. I remember we talked about this like something like twenty episodes ago or something like that. Oh, we were talking we? about how like I think that John Carpenter, out of like the the big like directors. directors of those days, he was like the most consistent. Oh, for sure. Like, he still had some even, like, like even, and I've only seen this is I think the fourth John Carpenter film. I've seen, but I can just kind of tell that he has a pretty consistent, like, goal for making movies, that it's like, I I can tell that the quality won't differ that much. Like, obviously, I've heard Ghosts of Mars is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, He's pretty, he's pretty, like, he's a pretty funny guy. I've watched a lot of, like, interviews with him, and he talks about, like, a lot of people will ask him his opinions on like a lot of the remakes of his films. And he goes, look, I'm going to be honest with you. They write me a check and I'm not involved any further beyond that. And it's like, at least he's honest about it. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's why like, (laughs) there's a difference between like him doing that and like Sam Raimi producing a film. Cause it feels like Sam Raimi feels like, I don't know if he is more involved, but it feels that way, so I'm always much more disappointed in a movie. I'm like, oh, maybe it'll be good, Sam Raimi's producing it, and then it's just fucking awful. Yeah. Oh, oh man. But, uh... Um, 
So they die. <laughs> the the ghost pirates show up and kill the guys in the boat. Yeah, they kill the guys in the boat. Um, meanwhile, then, while this is going on, we meet Tom Atkins' character. He's driving a truck, and he comes across. Do you know Tom Atkins' character's name? Oh, not off the top of my head. Here, let me just pull up the uh, IMDb so I can have. Well, this no, up. I got it. This is, this is like a fun little trivia bit as well. Uh, so his name's Nick Castle in the movie. And do you know the relevance of that name? Nick Castle. Um, Nick I know, Castle? Like, William Castle. Is it like Nick a Castle was uh, Nick? Yeah, Nick Castle was the original person who played uh, Michael Myers in Halloween. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, okay. I have heard that. There's before. like a ton of stuff in this movie that's just like homages to either his other movies or like other horror works. Yeah, we'll talk about most of them after we're done with the plot, but. Since this is relevant right now, I thought I'd bring it up. I like to think um, that this is the real Halloween, too. Since he originally <laughs> wanted it to be like an anthology horror film. And very much like the credit sequence reminded me a lot of like the same like The, the main use. theme of this song, this movie, is like so Halloween-esque. Oh, yeah. And I, oh, I can't wait to talk. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to say this now. Uh, this, this is one of John Carpenter's favorite scores that he ever made. It's a good one. It's um, really good. And I I really like it. Like to the point that I think I'd like the main I might like the main theme more than Halloween. And that may come down to the fact that I've just been so like the it's just so oversaturated how much I've heard the Halloween theme throughout yeah. my life. But I really, really dug this theme. I was like, this is awesome. I'd have to listen to it again. This is the first time I had seen this uh a version of this movie. I've, I've seen, like, the remake when it came out in theaters. Yeah, um, we should watch that. Oh, God. You just pick it for your modern pick. You're like, The Fog, again. Um, The Fog, redux. But, yeah. Um, I'd have to hear it more, but I did, I did, like, recognize it when I was listening to it, and I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. I think my favorite score of his overall that I've heard is, uh, the thing, but that one's that one's a bit different because he collaborated with uh, Ennio Morricone for that one. Yeah, and Ennio Morricone is fucking lit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like two soundtrack gods getting together to create this ultimate horror synth soundtrack. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, so Nick Castle is driving home, um, and he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays Elizabeth Sully. And then um, they're driving home. She's so much younger she says, than him. You know, she's so much. She's twenty two in this movie. Yeah, and he's, and he's like, like pushing like forty seven. <laughs> he's like, I'm like, sir, that's a child in comparison to you. Yeah, it's like. At least, like, the way the characters are written, it doesn't come off that bad, but, like, just seeing them next to each other, it's like, this doesn't work. And I'm like, it, I I haven't seen Tom Adkins in a lot of things, so I'm like, maybe he's just one of those guys that kind of looks old, but is only, like, 32, no. and then I'm like, no, this guy's, like, 50. 
Uh, like, and his character is like a sweetheart in the movie. You can tell, like, the character is written to yeah, be a very I like his character, person. and I kind of like their relationship dynamic. Like, I don't really mind it. And yeah. I don't mind, like, big age gaps. It's just kind of... It's just kind it's of noticeable. creepy sometimes. It plays into that whole famous Hollywood archetype of, like, the main character Yeah, like, like I said 50s. before, if it wasn't so relevant all the time, I wouldn't really care. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel on this one, too. Like, it didn't offend me. I felt like the characters were well-written and well-performed enough for me to be moved past it. But it was just one of those things where I would laugh every once in a while. Uh, um, but they're, they're driving. She, she gets picked up and they're driving. She's like, you know, I'm pretty unlucky. And then, like, right after she says that, all the windows just shatter. Yeah. And he's like, you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then they just keep kind of driving pretty like, much. Let's get the fuck out of here. Um, um, And then they go back to like his place where they're like checking out some of her photography or drawings or something. Um, Yeah, and they just kind of hang out that night. And then uh, this is where the fog like comes up and we get one of the pirates knocking on his window. But like right before he hits the door. Like, to open it up, uh, the clock strikes one and they disappear. Yep. Um, and then it pretty much cuts the next morning. Um, yep. Where Stevie Wayne is is up and at him. She's woken up by her son, oh. who we've seen before at the, uh, yeah, he the campfire, campfire scene. scene from the beginning. Um, um, he, he's actually outside playing and he sees a golden coin. What, what were you going to say? This kid and this mom dynamic reminded me so much of, like, the intro scenes to Child's Play. Just, like, the mother's cadence. The fact that the kid's name is Andy is just like, Jesus fucking Christ. I like to think that Tom Holland watched this movie and he's like, this is the dynamic I need in my film. This is what I need. Um, <laughs> But... Yeah, I just I just found it funny. It was like, oh shit! But yeah, that 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 was all I had to say on that. He finds a magical uh, coin that turns into a piece of wood. Yeah, and the wood has the words Dane on it, which is the the boat's name. Yeah, um, and he's like, wow! So he like wakes up his mom. He's like, mom, I found a magic coin, but then it turned into a piece of wood. And she's like, what the fuck are you smoking? <laughs> Leave me alone. But she she does take it to the lighthouse. She broadcasts her radio show like from the lighthouse. I'm like, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a cool little like place to host a radio station from. But she brings um, that piece of wood in and she like sets it up on top of like a case of cassette tapes that she has, and it's like right next to the thing that's like playing uh like radio spots for. Until she gets on air, but the piece of wood starts like dripping water, and then it catches on fire. It just starts seeping. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the tape player short circuits, and like a mysterious man just starts talking. Like, and he's like, "I'm gonna get revenge." Like, that's pretty much what he's saying. And she yeah. goes over to the wood, and uh, it doesn't say Dane anymore. It says Six Must Die, and then, it, and then that's when it bursts into flames. Oh, and then when she uses the fire extinguisher, it reads Dane again, and the tape player's fine. Yeah, strange little scene. Uh, she left it on top of the cassettes after that, and I definitely would have, like, 
chucked that shit out into the ocean. You're like, get yeah, this that's shit. What I, I would have just walked out of the lighthouse and threw it back in the ocean. I'm like, well, not getting haunted today. Um. But she immediately like calls her son, who is uh, with this lady. What is her name? It's like Mrs. Uh, Clovit. Cobritz, that's what it was. Clovitz. Clovitz, yeah. Um, and she basically tells her, she's she's like, you better not pick up any more shit off that fucking beach or I swear to God. And he's like, oh, I won't, Mom, jeez. Uh, but, yeah, so around this point, Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis are going around and they're like kind of investigating... Uh, the boat that went missing the night before because Tom Atkins is like their friend. And uh, I kind of got like the impression that he was like their boss at first because he's like waiting around for him and they never came in last well, night. Yeah, but- it kind of feels like and he, he like I, I have I like this character because it kind of feels like he's not being completely honest with like everything he does he's like because the other guy's like yeah this guy owes me a favor and he's like really worried about this guy so it feels like he's one of those guys that's like really buddy buddy but he kind of like runs things if that makes sense yeah like just because he like oh people owe favors and shit no maybe <laughs> but, then again it was like yeah, an the, 80s the boat's movie not there and... oh one of the boats in this dock has the name halloween <laughs> Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I didn't either until I, like, re-looked at it. Huh. Uh, because I was reading, like, trivia about the movie. Yeah. Uh. I think all the other names kind of have to do with stuff. Like, one of them is called, like, Lady Laura, which could just be, like, Lori from Halloween. Yeah. Uh. Huh. But they, they do take out a boat. Um, they, they're, he borrows it from a friend and they find, they, they go to this boat and there's no one there and they're just like, well, they've just been drinking. Where the fuck could they be? And then they, they find, after talking for a while, um, one of the bodies just like falls out from behind, like, something, a shelf. And there's like a huge, there's like a lot of like anomalies with the situation where they found the body and just on the boat in general, because it's like, well, he, he didn't have any... He did His eyes were gouged out. That was yeah. a big thing. Um, but then also, it, he was like... He was on the boat, but autopsy said he was, like, drowned. Yeah. Like, his body had been, like, in the ocean for a month. Uh, the uh, mortician guy, uh, he was describing... He's like, you know, like, last year when all those kids, like, were drowning in the water for a week before we found them? I'd swear he's been in the water longer. And it was like, oh, shit. But uh, they also, like, all the temperature gauges are, like, stuck on cold. There's, like, water in the engines. There's, like, a lot to suggest that the boat was, like, flipped upside down in the water, except, like, the deck is, like, completely dry. Um, So they're just, like, absolutely baffled by all of this. But, yeah, so the body falls on Jamie Lee Curtis, and then they go to the autopsy place where um, the mortician guy is, like, talking to Tom Atkins' character out in the hall, and uh, the corpse, like, gets up. And I thought it picked up, like, a scalpel, but I guess it picked up, like, a marker or something, or... 
it looked at least the final result. But of it, it might have been a scalpel because the thing on the ground looked like it was been it had been like carved into the ground. Okay, it, it looked like it had uh. kind of been like scuffed into the ground to me, but it might just be like the, the fact that it's a movie from 1980. Um, yeah, but yeah, he like almost gets up and it but looks it like gets up and then like stab Jamie Lee Curtis, but ends up just uh, carving a six into the ground. Yeah. Uh, no, wait, no, it carves a three. Oh, was it a three? My bad. Yeah. Because three people had died. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's saying three, and then later on, this isn't like a big spoiler, but it's the the six people that founded the town, It's they're saying that, you know, they need to kill six, and three have been killed, so they're saying three. It's either saying three down or three more, either way it works. Yeah. Um, oh. The other two are technically just missing still, but it's heavily implied they're fucking dead, because we saw them die. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, one we- of them is the husband of Kathy Williams, which is uh, one of the ladies in, the, like, the car. There's there's these two lady yeah, characters Janet, that aren't, like, Janet super Lee's prominent. One of them. Yeah, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Yeah, she was in Psycho. Uh, yeah, and you'll watch Psycho. That's uh, a good movie. <laughs> I've heard. We should watch uh, the Vince Vaughn one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> but, uh... So, that evening, uh, the local weatherman, Dan, he recalls Steve... Or Stevie, my bad. Um, and they, they have this thing where she he, like, hits on her a lot. And they're, like, I, I, they, they just kind of hit on each other. Uh, uh, mostly him. About, with it. It, it's mostly him being creepy and she's just kind of being nice. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, another fog bank is coming back in. And she's, like, worried because, obviously, she, she got a cursed piece of wood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, the fog starts gathering, like, outside the weather station. He hears a knock at the door, and Stevie's like, Don't go! He's like, Ah! Somebody's playing a trick on me! Yeah. And <laughs> like, meanwhile, while all of this is going on, she had gotten in contact. Uh, Tom Atkins had called her because he heard her, like, radio broadcast, and she mentioned the fog. And he called because he was, like, curious about that. So, basically, they agree to, like, meet up, but, um... Obviously, like, this stuff with Dan's going on, like, in between. So, while this is going on, she, like, quickly gets on the radio and goes, uh, the fog is, like, heading to this location for anyone who might be interested in that. And then, like, Tom Atkins, like, flips the vehicle around and heads to the place shortly after, uh, Dan is killed. He arrives there. Uh, yeah. all the fog is gone. Yep, and Dan, yeah, Dan is killed, though. Yes. He's like, somebody's playing a joke on me, and then he, like, dies. Yep. Um, and then as the fog starts, like, to move inland, like, it's a lot of telephones and power lines start going down, but because Stevie has a backup generator, she can still use her radio, and she starts being, like, uh, she's, like, telling her son, or her, she's like, somebody go get my son! So, Tom Atkins <laughs> drives uh, over there. Uh, right in, like, the nick of time, because, uh, Mrs., uh, whatever. Cobritz. Cobritz. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Cobritz. This is the scene I laughed really loud at. 
Yeah, she gets like hijacked into the fog and stabbed by like thirty she's guys. Like, yeah, she's like, "You got it! No, don't worry about the fog and don't worry about there's noises outside. Go to your room." And the kid's like, "What? No, I want to stay and see who it is." And then as soon as she's like, "No, go!" He like he's like, "Fine." As he's closing his door, <laughs> a fucking ghost pirate grabs her and kills her. Like, and I just thought it was really funny. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, I think she, like, dies, like, washing the dishes in the remake. For some reason, that's, oh. like, a scene I remember. But, um... Uh, then they, they start going after Andy, but Tom Nick Atkins, like, rescues him. busts open the window, and he's like, get the fuck over here! Come on! And they... Come on! Uh, they get in the car, and Jamie Lee Curtis is trying to drive away, but, like, they get stuck in the mud, and it's tension, but they pull out at the last second. Um, yeah. And yeah, they get away. They're driving. Uh, Stevie's just going on the crate, crazy on the radio, still going like, I'm sorry, I couldn't come. I have to stay here yeah. and tell people where the fog's going. And then yeah. she continues then to do pretty so. Much the, the fog's just like going around her as well. Like the, the lighthouse, she was like, now I can't really even leave either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's like, everybody go to the church. So they, they all do. So Nick and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and the, a father, obviously, and then the two women um, and the little kid. Yeah. And they're in the back room and Father Malone's like, listen, this is what they want me. I'm the last of the six. Once I die, we'll be okay. Uh, but there's also a he there's a page that he like hadn't read that was like ah oh, if I could give back all the gold I would I stole they thought that uh, there was a thief but I was the thief and I stole all the gold and put it into this like golden cross for the church in case I could ever give it back or whatever yeah so so he's like oh, I'll just give it back. Um, <laughs> So, like, the, the the ghost pirates show up and they start attacking the church. And people are like, uh, meanwhile, Stevie uh, is also attacked by a ghost pirate at the at the lighthouse. And I like this scene where um, the, the, she's, like, slowly walking around the lighthouse, the exterior. She's still, like, at the top of the lighthouse, but she's slowly walking around the exterior, like, looking through the windows, looking for the pirate as it slowly walks around the circle as well. Yeah. But then she climbs up to the top and she'll like, I'll just wait up here. And then the fog um, eventually kind of like overtakes her and another pirate appears and they're about to yeah, double stab her. her in the shoulder, I think. Huh? Oh, yeah. She, like, one of them stabs may, her in the shoulder. It, yeah. Uh, uh, so she's about to die and like another person. I think Tom Atkins is like getting grabbed as well. No, uh, one of the women is being grabbed, I think. Because yes, Tom, Tom Atkins goes and tries to save the father. So mm-hmm. Father Malone tries to give the golden cross to the pirate. And yes, he does it because, you know, to, see, I like this idea as well. Because as soon as he gives him the cross, the pirate, like, starts, like, lighting up and, like, shaking. Yeah. And I like this idea that it could either be, like, a spiritual thing where it's like, oh, the cross will save you, or it can just be like, the deed has been fulfilled. Here is the money. Yeah. Um, In case you don't want to just be like, oh, God's saving them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, personally, the God saving them was the last thing on my mind. I did, Like, the entire time I was totally thinking it was all about the money and, like, he's just, like, spiritually at rest now because he's got his fucking money. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, so but Tom he does. Uh, pulls him off. Father Malone's also like shaking because he's like stuck to this cross as well, like just pretty much magnetized to it. But Nick pull, or Tom Atkins pulls him off of it, and then suddenly there's like a blinding flash of light, and the whole pirate crew's gone. Yeah. And everyone's just like, hey, guys, we did it! (laughs) (laughs) And they're celebrating, and everyone's okay, and everyone leaves. Except for, obviously, the priest, because he's just like, this is my church. Um, And he's like, why why didn't you take me? Why didn't you take the sixth, Blake? And then as he's saying that, the fog starts, like, rolling in under the door, and he just, like, looks out to, like, the... uh, the fucking what? What are they called? The what? Are, what? What do you? What do you? What do you pray on? What altar. Do you, I don't know church things. Yeah, he looks out from his altar, and there's just a bunch of pirate ghosts, and they're still there, and they kill him. Yeah, it's like got him. Bam. But and then the movie ends. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I like this movie. I did felt like a. I like these little charming, like, small town versus supernatural force 80s horror movies. Yeah. Like, that's what I kind of said about, like, it It feels similar to the Chooper in the sense that it's like, oh, it's this low budget, like, uh, <laughs> small town kind of, you know, just like shitty town besides like one or two cool things. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Um. One of the big things I wanted to talk about, uh, and I did check this, this was real. I just, I, I actually have the movie pulled up on my, uh, on my TV at the scene. But, um, when, when Father Malone first discovers the journal, he looks at the title page, then he starts flipping through the book and he looks at, he stops at an open page of text, uh, just for like a split second. And it's it's partially blocked off just from the camera angle, but the parts that are visible just say, uh, it's it's like something blocked off and it's like, my college education to work writing dumb shit in this fucking movie's props. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh my god. (laughs) That's it's great. Really shit and then like, it's just like a bunch of nonsense in like in like old cursive, so it's kind of hard to read. Oh man, oh. that's great! <laughs> what the fuck? I'm gonna have to rewatch. And then that it says something like, "It's it. time to bring in the words guide or the big tits and shaved beavers." He just like starts writing nonsense after that. <laughs> Oh man! But I, I was like, I was like, that can't be real. And then I looked it up, and I, I, I haven't pulled up. I'm looking at the page right now, and I can clearly see dumb shit in this fucking movie's props. Jesus Christ! <laughs> that's great. I, I love just, that. That's really, really funny. <laughs> oh, I wish I had caught that when I was watching. Oh man. Usually, um, this is actually another thing about this and the Trooper is that um, both were like too short. Obviously, the Trooper is a lot shorter, but um, for most theatrical releases, they're like an hour and a half, and that's what people kind of want them to be if they're going to buy your film. Yeah. So, John Carpenter, the original cut was eighty minutes. 
Um, and John Carpenter added ten minutes to it. Uh, one of them is the prologue scene with the old captain telling the ghost stories, mm. which I'm glad they added that scene because I actually do like really like that scene. It, I as it, I think it sets up the like kind of tone of the film really well. Yeah, like kind of weird and jovial, but like for in characters, like in movie stuff, like in their universe, it's like horrifying and stuff. But we're just like la la la, <laughs> ghost pirates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost pirates with leprosy. True. <laughs> Remember that Scooby-Doo movie that had, like, almost the same plot as this? Except it was uh, on a boat instead of a... Yeah. Uh, I think that's just called... Like the ghost... I can't remember what that's called. Um, it's bad. Yeah, it's not a very um, good one. Yeah, I was I was disappointed in that one. There's a, there's a pretty poppin' soundtrack to that one. Uh, hmm. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the, like, places mentioned in this film, like, they, uh, they talk about, Stevie at one point flips the radio dial and a different broadcast shows up and they talk about, um, Waitley Point and Arkham Reef, which are both places in Lovecraft stories, and Carpenter really loved Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Like, there's just a lot of, like, character stuff and just... Character names, and then also places that are just things he likes. <laughs> um, I also like the fact that um, Stevie and Jamie Lee Curtis's characters, even though they're pretty much they're they're both the lead characters and Tom Adkins, but they like Stevie just never interacts with anyone pretty much except talking to Tom on the phone. Yeah. I think the only scene that she actually shares with anyone is her son, right? Yeah, which I I, I like that. I like this. I like this uh, like main character that's just kind of detached from everyone, but kind of like trying to keep them safe. Yeah, it's definitely uh, one of the more like iconic bits of uh, imagery from the film. Because I know, like before I ever even watched this, like the one thing I knew about it was the fact that there was like somebody stranded alone in a radio station trying to save people through the radio. Yeah. Um, the coroner's name was Dr. Fibes, which is a uh, horror movie character that Vincent Price played in the yep. abominable Dr. Fibes. I've got that one on VHS. So, Have you watched it? I've seen, or is it Phoebes? I, I'm I've not, seen, I haven't uh, seen it. So I've always sure. pronounced it Fibes. But uh, I've, I've seen like part of it. Um, it's an interesting movie. I need to, like, actually sit down and watch the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I need, I haven't heard much about its sequel, though. Because uh, I know it made a sequel to it. Like, Five Strikes yeah. Again or something like that. Uh, yeah, Dr. Fives Rises Again. Ah. Uh, um. The, uh. The fucking, the fucking movie, John Carpenter wanted this movie to be rated PG. Obviously, it was this, I don't think PG-13 was made yet, right? Or it was, like, right before it was made. Uh, um, I, I'm pretty sure there was a good couple years before PG-13 came out. I'm pretty sure that was, uh, might have been the late 80s, 90s. Let me see. Uh, because I know, like, movies like Jaws and uh, a couple of Indiana Jones movies, like, helped... 
like, be like, hey, maybe this shouldn't be, like, PG, but yeah, obviously it took a while. But he wanted it to be PG. And it, like I said, that just adds to the idea of, like, this tone of the movie. But ended up being R. <laughs> what uh, did you say? 1984 is when PG-13 came into effect. Uh, um... And then I have a, um, I have some notes from John Carpenter, uh, from his official website. Oh. Um, about the soundtrack to the film and also just the making of the film. So I'm just going to read that to you right now. Okay. The Fog was my fourth feature film, sixth if you count Someone's Watching Me and Elvis, two made for TV movies, and was meant to be an homage of sorts to H.P. Lovecraft, M.R. James, and other writers of Great Ghost Tales and The Supernatural. The screenplay was written in February and March of 1979 by Deborah Hill and myself. Along with Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designer and editor, Deborah and I scouted various lighthouses along the coast of California and settled on the magical Moody Lighthouse in surrounding windswept plains of Point Reyes, National Seashore, just 40 miles north of San Francisco, as the setting known as Antonio Bay in the screenplay. I shot the fog in April and May, and then took a 10-day vacation to Tahiti. When I returned, I rushed into the editing room at Samuel Goldwyn Studios to consult with Tommy Lee Wallace as to how the picture was cutting together. It was a disaster. Quite simply, the picture did not work. Numb with a horrifying loss of objectivity, I finished the editing and went to work on a musical score that I hoped would somehow save the picture. We dubbed the fog in September and finally watched the finished product. The movie I had made was clunky, clumsy, and awful. The music was heavy-handed and obvious. I wanted to pack up and leave town. This was the lowest point I had come to in my professional career. With a mighty Herculean effort, Deborah Hill... Tommy Lee Wallace and myself rewrote, recut, reshot, and rescored the picture in one month. I went back to Sound Art Studios in central LA and quickly began composing and recording new tracks. Dan Wyman, my creative consultant on Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween, was at my side programming the synthesizers, keeping a critical eye on my multi-tracked performances and maintaining quality control over the long hours of recording and mixing. And out of all this frenzy, reworking and restructuring, I produced what I can consider to be one of my best scores. What was missing from both the movie, the first aborted version, and its score, a lightness of tone, a softer, understated fear, was achieved. My favorite theme is associated with Stevie Wayne as she walks down the cliffside steps to her lighthouse radio station. It consists of three lines, a high flute melody, a mid-range counterpoint, and a low bass support. At the beginning of the second act, as Andy discovers a strange piece of driftwood on the rocks at Drake's Bay, I used a bell-slash-harpsichord round Real nine, ten minutes of elaborate chases, Tommy Adkins, Jamie Lee Curtis, Janet Lee, Nancy Loomis, Hal Holbrook, and Adrian Alt are trapped by the fog, was held together by an equally long piece consisting of a bell slash heartbeat driven by rising and falling synthesized tones. Hmm. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's I. I just like I like the fact that this movie was like such a weird kind of turning point for him because this was like, oh god, I fucked up. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. See if they can glue it back together with a great soundtrack. <laughs> and they did, and they, and was like, and they did it, and they made that tone. Like that's the thing I keep coming back to. I like this soft, light-hearted kind of tone to it. And the first movie, I feel like this movie wouldn't have worked at all for me if it wasn't for that tone. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so that first movie, that first aborted version, as he calls it, I probably would not have liked at all. <laughs> Yeah, probably. And I ended up really enjoying this one. Yeah, I I thought it was, like, decent, like, um, it didn't, like, blow me out of the water or anything, um, but I enjoyed watching it. I had a fun time. I just, I I think it just, it reminds me of stuff I, like, watched as a kid, kind of like these jovial kind of horror movies, like, not even necessarily horror, but this reminds me, it's honestly reminded me a lot of, like, uh, Gremlins or The Goonies. (laughs) Yeah. In its execution. And I, it kind of just made me feel at home. And I think that's one reason that I feel so, like, good towards it. I'm like, this was, I like this. Yeah, I definitely had, like, a similar kind of, like, nostalgic feeling to it. Because I watched a lot of, like, horror movies like this growing up as well as a kid. Um, But, yeah, I just feel like maybe if I had seen this at a younger age, I would have, like, liked it a little more because I felt like there's lots of sequences in this that I'd seen in other <laughs> movies that, to be fair, may have taken it from this. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. I, I definitely still enjoyed it, though. I had a fun time. That was a fun yeah, little like, I don't think it's, movie. like, great, but I, I do I do really, I did really enjoy it. I, I didn't have, like, a lot of, like, glaring problems with it. I thought it was really well-paced. Like, I was kind of just, like, really invested. And I think that's also the score. Like, the score, I think, really, really sold the movie for me. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, and it just kept, like, even the the scenes that I don't really think were necessary. Like, I don't really think that uh, oh. Jamie Lee Curtis's mother's character was needed in the movie, like, at all. Same here. Um, like, every scene <laughs> like she the, was in was, like... She's not even really in many scenes. She's only... she. I think she only has, like, two or three solo scenes, and they all... She's probably not even on screen for more than, like, seven minutes by herself or with her one friend. <laughs> but it feels like it, though. Those scenes really dragged on. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, the, the music in that really helped me get through it. So that, was, so that was really my only real problem with the movie. And even then, I got through it, but... And I, I do, I do like the the talk he's talking about that that lighthouse being like this enchanting, like mystical thing. And I agree with that. I think this 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 town they picked and this lighthouse, I think, really helped to sell this movie. It just, I, I'm not sure what it was, but there was something enchanting about this lighthouse to me. I just really liked seeing it. Hmm. But yeah. I don't know what 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 would you give the movie? I'd probably give it a six. Okay, and I'm I, I like I said I don't think it's amazing, but I I did really enjoy it, so I'm going to give it a seven. Okay, so that means in total point. we're going to give us yeah six point five. All right, what are we talking about next, Thomas? Uh, it's a movie from last year called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um. It's a really interesting movie. I did a little bit of research on it. Um, 
I watched some like interviews with uh, Jimmy Wales and uh, Tom. What's his name? Jimmy Fails, by the way. That's what I said. I, oh, I heard Wales. <laughs> oh, it might have just been my mic not picking up my F. Or I might have just said Wales and just completely uh, had a brain fart. Well, Either we'll know. We'll know in the. Re- we'll, we'll know. We'll know. <laughs> yes. The director, what? Joe Talbot. Joe Talbot. Yeah, I don't know why I was saying Tom. Tom, you know Tom. I, I this is produced was... by Brad Pitt. I always forget about that. Huh? This is produced by Brad Pitt. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh shit. Brad Pitt's a good producer. He like he chooses his movies like. Well, look at the things Brad Pitt's produced. 12 Years a Slave, Ad Astra, Moonlight, The Departed, Oakja, If Beale Street Could Talk, <laughs> Beautiful Boy. Like, most of the movies he produces or has a producing credit on, The Lost City of Z, you know. Yeah. No. Good movie. Those are all pretty great movies. Well, out of the ones I've seen. Um, let's see. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, let's see. Should I just start with the synopsis, or should I talk a bit about like the interview stuff that I got? Oh, uh, you talk about the interview stuff. It's it's interesting because this movie feel is so personal and genuine that I feel like talking about backstory and interviews before the plot is probably the way to go. Okay, I'll be light though because um, a lot of this movie is based on real life. Like, uh, Jimmy Fails plays himself. Plays Jimmy Fails, yeah. A fictionalized version of himself. Um, but, like, the house is real. The, the whole thing that they go through in the movie, like, um, I don't know about, like, the whole thing they go through in the movie, but, like, the whole, like, uh, whether it was really built or not, that was all, like, uh, real. Like, I watched a Sway interview where they were awkwardly trying not to spoil the film as he was asking in-depth questions about the house. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, basically, uh, Jimmy, like, idolized his grandfather and really wanted to carry on his legacy because he shared his name and felt like he owed it to him. So, I feel like that's kind of what this film was. Um, Joe Talbot and... Jimmy and, like, Joe's brothers, when they were, like, kids, they made, like, a bunch of movies, and Jimmy was, like, always the star of those, and they've been talking about making this movie since they were, like, in high school, um, and they, like, tried for five years before the movie actually got made, and, uh, the actor who plays Monty just came and, like, tried out for the role, and, uh, He's great. He, he was great. He really killed it, and, uh, they basically like said that when they were casting for it, they had to look for someone who would really fit into their friend dynamic because they're like lifelong best friends. So they're gonna bring in like a third person that had to be someone who like meshed really well with them. And they were just really lucky through the audition process to find. Let me find the guy's name who plays Montgomery. Jonathan Majors. Yes, they found Jonathan. Jonathan, sorry, I'm tired. Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan. Jonathan. Um, they find Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors, and he he does like an absolutely stellar job in this movie. Um, so does Jimmy Fails. Like Jimmy Fails, they both just like 
particularly Jimmy fails. Like they've both got different like camera dynamics, but like Jimmy will just like give this like stare into the camera. And it's like, you can see into his soul. Like it's so powerful. Yeah. Which is so crazy because Jimmy, I don't like, I don't think Jimmy's really done any like acting before. No, this is, this is their like first movie. Um, yeah, like he was in a short film that they, they made together. Yeah, um, Jonathan Majors has been but, in a couple so, things, but yeah, he's been in a couple. He's he's also like pretty new to the scene, though. Like that's what's so great. Like both these guys are, and this is just, like this movie's so good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I quite enjoyed it. That's why I picked it. I'm like, oh fuck, London still hasn't watched this movie yet. Well, he's about to. Yeah, I'm about to. <laughs> Uh, holy fuck yeah so basically the film begins um with jimmy and monty they're waiting at this bus stop technically although it's not like a traditional bus stop there's not like a like an actual bus stop it's just kind of like a rock on a hill where they sit and they wait for the bus yeah there was there was in my town like on because I lived on an island, there were a lot of places that weren't really, there was just kind of a rock or there was just, you know, sometimes there weren't even socks. Okay. See, um, I never really like rode the bus, so I I wasn't sure. And around here I always see the, uh, like, little benches. Yeah, with, like, uh, obviously like, there were, like, near my school there was a lot of, like, benches and stuff, but uh, there, were, there were quite a few like, um, so I guess this is a good backstory because I kind of I'm familiar with the bus system. But when mm-hmm. I was uh, in high school, I lived uh, out of the school district, or we moved right when I was starting high school. But I didn't want to change schools, so they let me stay in that. And they picked me up, but then my parents got like divorced, and it was like messy. So then I started having to ride the public bus home, or I had to stay in town. Uh, um, until my mother got off work. So I walked from my school to the bus stop, which was like a 35 to 40 minute walk. Oh, wow. Um, I think, I don't really remember. It, I may be exaggerating that because I was like in high school and I'm like, oh, it's so hot. But I think it was a decent walk. Um, or I would walk into town, which was like another 15, 20 minutes. Um but I would ride the public bus, and that that bus stop was just kind of like nothing. It was just kind of next to the main road, huh? <laughs> but so I, I am familiar with bus stops that don't look like bus stops. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is it was completely that's, new to that's me. all I wanted to say. I'm just I'm just being dumb. I'm just <laughs> I know about bus stops. Uh, you're good. Yes, <laughs> providing valuable insight that I could not. Um, but basically, um, there's like a dude there who's like up on a soapbox and he's kind of preaching about how, because there are all these men in like hazmat suits who are cleaning their local, uh, like, uh, like a lake. Um, and he's basically like, why the fuck are these guys wearing hazmat suits? But we're not, they're concerned about cleaning the water now. Of all times, you know, this place has been here for years, but now they're cleaning the water. There's something they're not telling us, and you know, it's real conspiratorial kind of stuff. And they're sitting there and they're watching yeah. him, and they're basically wondering, it's like, oh, you know, does he practice this every morning, or is it more impromptu? Um, 
and they like talk about how like jail could really change a person because this guy went to jail and clearly uh he's out now standing on soapboxes yelling at guys in hazmat suits but uh they basically come to the conclusion that if they wait around any longer for the bus they'll be late so they basically just ride into town on the skateboard um and they both share the skateboard and as soon as they like get into i don't know what it is but i figure i've realized that skateboarding scenes in like movies, especially in the last like couple years, skateboarding scenes have become like so prominent. Like oh, there's yeah. been a lot of like movies that are just like about a skateboarder or like like because there was uh Minding the Gap, which was an amazing documentary from twenty eighteen. There was uh mid nineties, which I still haven't seen. There's this, there's Skate Kitchen, like there's all these movies coming out because all these people that grew up with skateboarding as, like, their main thing to keep them out of trouble are, like, now tied... They're like, well, I'm a filmmaker now. <laughs> and it just... It... it I've, I've come to realize that skateboarding scenes just feel so fucking personal to me. Not necessarily because I, like, ever skateboarded, but, like, my brother did, so it always reminds me of him. <laughs> and it just... It just feels very personal. Especially when a guy gets naked and is like, I'm coming with you! Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, skateboard scenes are like, there's something like really just kind of like free about them. Like anytime yeah. I see like a really good one, it always feels like that. serene cool. too. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. It's got a really good skateboard scene in that No, movie. I still haven't seen any Xavier Dolan's films. Hmm. Yeah, um, I've only seen that one, and I thought it was pretty good. I've heard so-so about some of his other movies, but I haven't seen any I've heard, of them. like, most of his films are really strong. I, I know that, like, the latest one, uh, not everybody loved it, but yeah. I, I do want to watch his stuff. Yeah, for sure. He's one that I need to watch more of. Ah. But, yeah, basically they get into San Francisco and immediately... You know, all eyes are on them. You know, they've got like they're getting glares from people, strange looks, because they're like the only two black men that we can see. Um, and like one dude straight up is like taking his clothes off. He's like stripping down and he's like begging them. He's like, "Oh, take me with you!" And I don't know if he like thinks they're in a gang or something, and he's just like, "I wants to be part of it." Or what his line of logic I is think there? He's just crazy. Yeah. There certainly are a lot of crazy naked people in this movie. Um, we certainly see one later in the film for a brief moment, but let's see. Yeah, so basically, they get to this house um, where, you know, Jimmy begins, like, painting the windows and stuff. And Monty is supposed to be keeping watch, but he gets kind of caught up in drawing in his little notebook that he's got. So Jimmy gets, like, wailed on with croissants by this lady who lives in this house that he's painting. And we find out... Croissant attack. Huh? I said croissant attack. Oh, yeah. She's like, get the fuck out of here, man. Just, I'm gonna call the cops eventually. And the husband's like, no, no, we're not no, gonna call the cops. No, we're not gonna call the cops. <laughs> it's like... But he's like, it's fucking weird, man. Come on, just stop coming and painting our house. 
So he's like, if you started taking care of your house, I would. (laughs) Yeah, so basically, Jimmy's been coming here and, like, fixing up these people's house for some reason. Um, We'll find that out here soon. But basically, yeah, they forced them to leave because obviously they don't live there. So, um, I really like this part. It's a nice little bit of, like, just simple visual storytelling. But as they kind of, like, go back into their neighborhood... They're riding down on, like, this downhill slope, obviously, kind of uh, visually symbolizing, like, the disproportionate way that they're, like, you know, black people are kind of, like, confined to these specific neighborhoods in San Francisco, which are obviously less high class than these big houses. Um, Yeah, I just, I like that little scene, and... Here is where they're talking about... It reminds about. me of uh, visual storytelling that they do a lot in Parasite. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Whenever, like, they go back to their house and it's like, you can tell They walk, like, like, super far down. Like, it's showing how the wage difference, you know. Yeah. Um, also, some, like, high and low kind of shit. Like, where the house is, like, way up on the hill. Um, but let's see... Yeah, so basically they're talking about, like, the water. Um, Jimmy explains, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, that water's actually, like, fucking toxic. Like, I straight up saw a seagull with a human dick. And it's just like, hmm. Uh, But basically, as they're walking back, Monty is explaining. He's like, well, we literally shower in that same water. But the way he says it, and as you know, the little bit of context he gets there, there's this, like, uh, group of guys that hang out outside of his house that uh, begin, like, harassing them with, like, homophobic uh, accusations because they're obviously, like, two close friends who don't really live behind, like, that wall of uh, masculinity that these guys are where it's like, oh, man... You know, some fruity shit. You guys showering, living together, spending all your time together kind of shit. Um, And basically, they explain what they were talking about. You know, the water. And one of the dudes who's outside their house loitering is basically like, well, you know why the water around here is so fucked up, right? He's like, why? It's like, because they built the atomic bomb right over there. And they kind of like look and they're like, uh... Yeah, I don't I think, don't that's, think true. that's true. <laughs> and they just go back inside. And uh, it's here where we see their living situation. Uh, Jimmy lives with Monty and his uncle, who is played by... Uh, oh, God. I'm going to... Danny Glover. Glover. I always fucking mix him and Donald Glover up. I do, too. Like, <laughs> oh, God, which one is it? Um, but yeah, so Danny Glover plays their uncle... he's like a blind man so there's another bit of visual storytelling here where you know Monty and uh, the uncle are like up on the couch and they're watching TV and Jimmy's kind of like down on the floor next to the couch meaning obviously he doesn't quite feel at home there um yeah and yeah basically we see like he's got like a little mattress that's like right next to uh Monty's bed like on the floor they both share like a pretty small space um Jimmy pays like half the rent and half the bills there but uh seems like he's been living there for a while he came in off the street like he he was 
the homeless before uh, living with Monty. And then, let's see. Where are my notes? Oh, yes. I love this little little scene transition here. We get like a transition where it's like a bunch of kids are like throwing rocks at each other. And we get this nice like point of view shot from the perspective of one of the rocks as it hits a kid in the head. Um. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah, there's there's like n- nice little like visual transitions in this movie that I really like. I like a lot of the cinematography in this movie and a lot of the decisions I, that they decide to make. I thought this movie was fucking gorgeous. Oh, it it really is. It's great. Um, but while these kids are throwing rocks at each other, Monty's kind of like over on the boat and he's drawing the scene in his book. But he, uh, he puts, like, a red curtain over, like, their heads. Like, it's, like, up above them. So, obviously, I I don't know what this is necessarily meant to insinuate, but you, you can tell that, like, his outlook on life, he very much views life like a show. You know, he's always trying to write a play. Like, that's his gimmick throughout yeah. the movie. Um, and... You can tell he he's not he's got to be like somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, he he's not quite um, normal. Like he's just doesn't quite pick up on a. Oh God, what's the, what's the term? What, uh, social cues. Yes, exactly. Like uh, there's a scene where the like loiterers outside of his house, like the big uh, group of guys are like yelling at each other. They're having this big confrontation. He goes up and he's like, good, good. And he kind of like starts critiquing their performances and giving them notes. And they're like, what the, what the fuck's wrong with you guy? You're not a director. Get the fuck out of here. Um, but yeah, but while, while he's drawing in his little book here, a fish flops onto his boat and it's got like two eyes on one side of its head. He's just kind of like, Oh, Hmm kind of like awkwardly deciding what to do with it but then we transition to a part where he's like on a dock near some like low tide and he's like rehearsing a scene where he's playing the soapbox man and the soapbox man is like talking to a hazmat suit guy kind of like rehashing some of his uh, rant from earlier in the movie but uh, yeah. let's see we see after this, Monty works at like a seafood market. Like he gives out seafood. He, he like, gets he gets the fish and he, he he gives it to the people. Yep. And uh, Jimmy works at a nursing home where he flirts with an old lady. And well, then, what else do you do with old woman? True. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not true. Um, I'm sure. Sure, there's something they. You can, do with them and probably like play chess with them play bingo i'm sure they would really enjoy that most old ladies i know enjoy bingo um well, maybe a nice big puzzle they might like that uh let's see jimmy and monty then are sitting back outside the bus stop again and uh the guy there's a guy who comes up and uh, we find out like this used to be the car that Jimmy and his dad lived in, but this guy just kind of drove off with it one day. Um, but he basically like picks him up and he like, 
pressures them into taking a ride from him as opposed to the bus. So they get in and he basically just gives them a lot of shit for being homeless alone and not visiting his father enough. And they stop outside this apartment complex that was like burnt down by the landlord. And they have like this line where it's like, you know, the people who lived here, they thought they owned the place, but they don't realize you don't own shit in this world. And, uh, yeah. The, then, uh, let's see. They go to the house where they see a big, like, U-Haul and uh, a bunch of, like, movers and boxes. And they're kind of curious, so they ask one of the movers what's going on. And he explains that, like, the mother died and that there's, like, a legal feud going on between who gets the house between, like, the two sisters. So the house is basically going to be empty. They go and they, like, talk to this realtor who looks like Matt Watson from Super Mega. Um, and he basically... And he's evil. He's he's pretty evil. Yeah. He's kind of a, kind of he, a douchebag. He, he's like... He's like, yeah, it's it's so sad. They're just going to be sitting there while people are on the streets. Ah, oh, it's so sad. Yeah. Oh, man. It's just like the classic, like, white person approach to, like, someone being, you know, like, racism existing or anything bad existing in the world, but it's not really, like, pertaining to them. They're just like, ah, oh, shucks. Yeah. yeah. It's too bad. <laughs> It's too bad that people are homeless. Well, I'm gonna go back to my apartment. <laughs> yeah. But basically, yeah. Um, they find out this place is gonna be empty, so they basically decide, well, let's go squat there. Um, this is where my detailed notes end, and I have to switch over to the Wikipedia, so... <laughs> let's see... So they squat there. Yeah, they squat there. <laughs> they they go to their auntie's house. Yeah. Um, played they by... They go to their aunt's house. Oh, what is her name? I really like her. She's in Little Shop of Horrors. I should know this. She's in Little Shop of Horrors? Yeah, she's one of the chorus girls. Uh, she's also in uh, huh. Everybody Hates Chris, obviously, as, like, the mom. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh... I think this is how I pronounce her name. Tashina Arnold. I don't know how to pronounce her first name. I think so. I think it's Tashina. But, uh, yeah, no, she's great. I always enjoy when I see her in a movie. Um, she's just one of those personalities that I really like seeing around. Uh, I feel that. But, yeah, basically she plays their aunt. She kind of kept... So... Kind of, it seems like the dynamic was like Jimmy's entire like big family used to live there, but um, Jimmy's dad is like a crack addict who kind of sold a bunch of shit and eventually lost the house and got it taken away from them. Um, but so he goes there to get all the stuff that's still left because she's been the one holding on to it because she's obviously been the kind of like responsible person of the family because she's got like a house even though it's like far out of town and she's got like a boyfriend who <laughs> I really like the scenes with this guy well, I forget the character's name um uh, uh um, Ricky? yeah 
Was it Bobby? No, was it Ricky? I think it was Ricky. Um, but yeah, he's just he's just like this uh, dude that she's dating, and she's like, "Oh man, it's fun as hell on that skateboard." And there's like a scene where he like eats shit, and then she's like, "You still look good." And then they do this like really, it's kind of awkward, but it's kind of funny. Like this weird close up of his face where he's like smiling at her. <laughs> it cracks me up every time I watch it. But <laughs> basically, yeah, he drives. Him alone, he he drives them and the stuff back to the house and, like, leaves it out. Because she would obviously, like, recognize the place and it would be, like, a narrative speed bump, I guess, at that point. Because she's talking about, like, she always knew Jimmy would be, like, the one who gets his shit together. And it's obvious, like, he, he didn't really get his shit together. He's just kind of squatting in this house, but... You know, it's obviously yeah. very personal to him, and he views it as though he's earned this house. Um, so, yeah. Uh, let me scroll back over the synopsis here. So, they go to the auntie's house, they get everything back, and they start living in the house, you know? they uh, It's like a scene where they go and they talk to their neighbor, who's, like, walking their dog when they first arrive, and he's obviously, like, pretty antisocial, probably pretty racist by the looks of it and how his dog was growling um goes up and shakes hands with him and uh jimmy's like i'm gonna be the best damn neighbor you ever had and he like leaves and he's like what the fuck was that about like what the fuck um and yeah so they're just kind of like living there um we kind of get a deeper look into both their characters um monty's writing the play and he starts trying to like really start deeply analyzing one of the dudes who like hangs out outside of his house who is named oh what was his name coffee kofi 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 um who we find out grew up with uh, Jimmy because they were both part of a group home and uh, Monty basically yep. like invites him over one night and he comes over and he checks out the place and he he's like really cool you know he seems like he's a pretty down to earth guy you know he's kind of like just enjoying the house you know they're catching up uh, they go up into like a sauna and they smoke but then the next day, because basically, like, they're kind of, like, solidifying their move-in, you know? Um, they're going and grabbing the last of their stuff from uh, Monty's uncle's house. Or I guess he's a grandpa. I, I've just been calling him an uncle this whole movie. He's Grandpa Allen. So, my bad. Good old Grandpa Allen. Uh, so they go back to uh, Grandpa Allen's house and... This is where we get, like, a scene between Grandpa Alan and Monty, uh, where basically Monty's packing up because he's going to be moving in with Jimmy. He picks out, like, a room and everything. It's, like, the dining room at this, uh, at the San Francisco house. And, uh, he's, you know, really enjoying it. And then, uh, his grandpa comes in and he's basically like, oh, you know, I hear he's 
talking about paying bills on the phone. Does that mean he's going to be chipping in a little more around here? And he's like, Grandpa, he already pays half. And he's like, well, you know, he ain't exactly family. And it's like, yeah, but he already pays half. Come on. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck? Not going to pay more than half. But uh, basically, they kind of like talk briefly and... Monty lets his uncle know he's like oh you know I'm, I'm kind of working on a show right now like a project and his uncle gets really excited you can tell that they work on projects together a lot because he's like oh you know we can brainstorm we're really good at brainstorming but you can tell that this is like more of a personal project for Monty and he's just kind of like you know grandpa I think I need to I think I need to work on this one alone but I'd love to talk about it soon and you can tell it's like killing him inside like he he doesn't like uh, turning his grandfather away like this, but uh, something that he feels that is that he needs to do. So as they're leaving the house here, um, Kofi and like his group start like harassing them as they're leaving because they're like carrying all their shit and they've got like a bunch of like hats on and stuff. They look kind of funny as they're leaving. Um, and then Kofi like comes in and starts like viciously attacking Jimmy with some like deep personal cuts about his dad and uh and his mom and his mom yeah and oh do the mom and it dad looks like jimmy's about to go fight him for a moment yeah he, he he's like one step away from doing it and i can't remember do the mom and dad scene happen before this uh this scene let me see because it's not mentioned in the wikipedia synopsis of course um what, when, when he goes sees and, the mom? Oh, both the scene where he talks to his dad and his mom. Uh, he he talks to... Um, I think his mom his is after this. Before this. His, yeah, his yeah, dad before this. Yeah, his dad before this, his mom's after. So basically, he had gone in one scene and uh, visited his father uh, shortly after, like, the dude had picked him up in the car and was giving him shit for not doing it enough. And uh, there's, like, a scene... Uh, there's like a street performer who's like singing opera who's like really good and I was like oh damn and he like you know tips him and then like leaves his skateboard next to him and goes hey man could you watch this for a second guy gives him like a thumbs up and uh, we see that uh, Jimmy's father can see this through like his apartment window up there we see that he was like watching him as he rolled up Um, but he basically like goes inside and they're talking a little bit they're like cutting out uh, like CDs, CD art. Uh, um, he's making bootleg DVDs of Cliffhanger, the Sylvester Stallone movie. Oh, is that what they were doing? I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, checked. I'm sure that movie's selling bootlegs like No Tomorrow and uh, that's, what I, that's what's so funny about this. And I'm like, why Cliffhanger? <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, basically, he kind of starts talking about the house, and his dad, you know, gets all super fucking aggro, and he goes, I know you're fucking lying to me, I know you got a skateboard, I saw you fucking leave it with that guy down there. That house isn't ours, just to fucking move on, get the fuck out, and then like, he, like, kicks him out of the house. So, Jimmy, like... Obviously, goes back um, home. And then that happened earlier in the movie. So that leads us to this point. Um, 
where they're like moving shit over. And oh, they're like in their house later that night and he sees uh Monty is like drawing the group of guys who usually hang out outside of his house. And he's like, What the fuck are you drawing them for? Uh oh god. Let me take a drink of water real quick, my throat's kinda dry. <laughs> Before you die. Uh but um yeah, he basically explains, he's like, oh, just because they're mean to me, I'm not allowed to, like, be interested in them. That's absurd. That's silly. <laughs> so I, I, I thought that line is pretty funny, which I, I, I kind of understand that sentiment. I can get, like, finding people interesting. Like, I don't, yeah, I I don't feel it. do it to people I personally know, but I know that, like, people in history that I can find very detestable that I can still find, like, interesting. Like, it's kind of like a similar line of logic there, I feel. Um, Where he's just like, wow, these people are super interesting and I kind of want to, like, just write about them and learn about them a bit more. Um, But, so, yeah, they're like, I'm pretty sure this is, like, now the scene where they, uh, they're like, they grab like a couple flower pots and they're like heading back to the house on the bus. And this is where they like have that awkward confrontation where they just randomly happen to sit across from Jimmy's mother. And it's like the most awkward scene ever because uh, apparently her character had moved to L.A., but she's been back for a few months, but hadn't told Jimmy. Um, and... You know, she clearly is just, like, wants nothing to do with him, but is trying to be nice in this awkward, uh, just bumping into each other that they've had. So, because he's like, oh, you know, I'm living in that house, you know, you can come stop by anytime. And she's like, yeah, I'll stop by tomorrow, tomorrow. And you can just totally tell she's lying right as she's saying it. And it's just like. Yeah, because at first she's like, I'll call you, and then I'll stop by tomorrow. You know, I got your number, and he's like, I don't have a phone. She's like, oh. She's well, like, oh, I'll just, well, stop I'll just show up. What time? He's like, anytime. Anytime works. And she's like, oh, well, all right, I'll be there tomorrow then. I'll be there tomorrow then. And it's, like, super awkward. But then immediately they get off the bus, and uh, they're, like, going back to the house. And there's the lady who used to live there, who the croissant lady. And they're basically like, mm-hmm. what the fuck are you doing and here? They, like, don't, they like, don't want her to know that they're like just living in the house illegally. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so she's like, totally oh, rattled. we'll just come back. Yeah, so they go and they like to stay at uh, uh, Monty's place that night. And then they go back the next day. But, surprise, surprise, all their shit's thrown out. And there's a realtor sign on it with that Matt Watson looking motherfucker. Uh, and they're obviously pretty pissed about it. Um, but yeah, so basically, pretty much immediately, Jimmy is like, fuck, alright, stay here, I gotta go. And he leaves. And he goes to try to get a loan, even though he doesn't have any money to put down. And he's obviously turned away. But while this is going on, Monty goes and he talks to the realtor. And he's Basically, he, he tries, like, this move where he's like, I'm going to get your license revoked because you're lying. And he's like, oh, this is our, 
these are like basic lies that every single house listing has. Like you're no one's gonna give a shit. By the way, you guys are like squatting. I know I have your mail. I can call the cops on you. Should be thankful that it was me who got it. Someone who actually kind of cares about the house and not you guys. I'll be nice and I won't call the cops, but you guys got to get the fuck out of there. And then they get into a huge feud about who built the house. And uh, Monty's gets pretty emotional about it. He's like, you're fucking lying. Uh, Jimmy James Wales built that house in 1946 and he's like no 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 that house was built in like 1857 or whatever by uh i don't remember the name a, of the architect it was an asian architect and he he very poorly he like doesn't even pre- attempt to pronounce it correctly yeah he's like woohoo or some shit like he, he literally, yeah, he says literally that. he's like Ooly. and i'm like fuck off um but yeah so basically uh Monty goes back to the house and Jimmy had like dragged pretty much all the shit back in except for the couch. And he goes up and he like looks and talks to him. And uh, he's basically like, yo, man, they're going to kick us out of the house. They're going to call the cops if we persist. You know, we should probably put a close on this chapter of our life, you know, move on from this house. And uh, Jimmy's like, I can understand if you can do that, but. I just can't, you know, this place means too much to me. I'm going to stay here. And then Monty's like, well, then I'm going to just stay here with you, you know. I'm your best friend through thick and thin. I'm going to be by your side. And, uh, yeah. So later that night, Monty finishes writing his play and he's like, I'm going to put it on next week. Um, and... Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to remember if there's... Anything that really happens in between this and the play. I don't think there is. Pretty sure it's just like back to back from this point. But uh, yeah, so they uh, decide to throw this play in the house. They're going to throw it like in the attic, have a small audience that goes up there. Um, Jimmy's dad is the first person to show up and uh, he kind of like looks around the house. This is a scene I really like with him. Um... I don't really like Jimmy's dad. I think he's kind of a piece of shit, but there's like a character scene that I feel like really humanizes him where he kind of like goes over and starts playing the organ and like remembering when he's a kid. And he's like, oh, my dad used to like fucking hate when I used to play this shit. And yeah. Well, it's just it just feels like a lot of the the a lot of the bad characters in this movie, like the bad people are obviously just like fucked by the system and like they're cynical and they're put into boxes that we'll talk about soon but yeah it's like it's not excusing them but it, it shows why they do what they do mm-hmm. um but yeah so basically upstairs um Mont puts on a, a kind of a one man show it's got a little bit of audience interaction there's like a small little trio of like a choir that uh, sings background music and there's like a guy who dresses up as death who shows up in one part but basically um, they invite like a bunch of people we've seen throughout the movie like the soapbox guys there um, Kofi's uh, like group of friends is there oh fuck we forgot to talk about Kofi 
Kofi died, by the way. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. I'm like, guys, Kofi. Yeah. One of the big things that happened a uh, few scenes ago, um, Kofi dies after... It was after they they got into that big fight, or he was really rude to Jimmy. He Kofi, he feels big and powerful because his, his crew finally, like, accepts him because he was being a dick, pretty much. Yeah, because... And he like, was, like, standing his ground first part of the film they're basically giving him shit because he's you know he's not very much for confrontation he runs away (laughs) from like a some sort of sticky situation that they were in and uh that like led to the scene where they were like screaming in his face earlier when monty like came up and started like giving them director's notes um and it was clear that like he saw an opportunity where he had like a bit of an upper hand and threw Jimmy under the bus in order to kind of like prop himself up with his current group of friends. Um, but yeah, he just, he kind of kept up that energy and, uh, talked shit to the wrong group of guys turned out to be from the Bay side and, uh, they killed him. (sighs) And then, he he was right. Uh, fucking Montgomery was talking about how he was like writing this play for Kofi, and uh, Jimmy's like, "Well, you don't have to stop now." And he eventually does start writing again after they get kicked out, and then move back in. They're like, "Fuck it, we're just gonna live here until we get kicked out." <laughs> yep. So he puts on this little show, and the first part is kind of like acknowledging the confrontation between. Um, like the first one he saw, where after he'd run away from the fight. Yeah, and uh, by the way, the person who he was like having this confrontation with it was also his cousin. Um, so it's just kind of like that extra salt in the wound. But so he kind of like has this little scene, and then he kind of goes through like social media where he analyzes people's posts, you know, where they're obviously kind of, like, milking his death for sympathy likes online, you know? Like, one of them is, like, straight up, like, I just got yelled at by my boss for being late to work, but don't they know that, like, grief has no time or whatever, something like that? Um, And it's just, like, a bunch of, like, posts that are, like, very, like, surface level oh man I just smoked with him the other night kind of shit and he's basically explaining yeah. it's like Kofi's life was more than what could be like surmised through these posts that people are going to remember him for you know people are going to look back and see this you know but he was much more than that you know and then he starts asking people in the audience it's like what you know how do you, how are you going to remember Kofi and one lady's like oh you know he came around and he used to like walk my niece to school or whatever he seemed like a sweet guy and then um uh the uh grandpa played by a uh, danny glover um grandpa allen he he explains like he used to be like little league or soccer or something but kofi used to like stay behind and help him like clean up after every match and that's how he wants to remember kofi and uh then he points to the two people that this is kind of like, it seems like the show is kind of like tilted towards. And that's uh, Kofi's cousin. 
he basically is like, how are you going to remember Kofi, man? And he stands up and he basically, he goes, I don't know, man. Was, was I too hard on him? Was I? And he's just, you know, he obviously feels really guilty about the whole thing that goes on. Because, I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously, like, you could blame him for it. But, and to a certain extent, it is, you know, maybe he did push him too hard. But a lot of it is, like, the kind of, like, culture. You know, you got to, like, act tough. And he just kind of acted tough towards, like, the wrong group of people, you know? It's like, fuck, man. It's a a really rough scene to watch. (laughs) Having to see all these people kind of, like, confront, you know, their guilt. But then he, like, turns over to Jimmy. He goes, how are you going to remember Kofi, Jimmy? And, you know, Jimmy explains, he's like, you know. Kofi was really mean to me. He said some of the most fucked up shit. The last time I saw Kofi, he was a fucking asshole. Yeah, but then he explains, like, when he was growing up in the group homes, there was one time where he was, like, getting jumped by a group of kids. And Kofi, despite not being a fighter, as we've seen throughout the movie, you know, he had fought for Jimmy and stood up for him. And he goes, you know, it's kind of fucked up, but, you know, people aren't just one thing, you know? And then this is kind of what uh, Monty Montgomery was like leaning towards. He's like, yes, yes, exactly my point. And then he starts like listing off like these really great traits that Jimmy has. He's like, Jimmy, you know, you're a caring person. You care about people. You're great at taking care of things. Like you're basically a carpenter. Like you can do anything, man. And he's like, you exist outside these walls and basically starts confronting him about the house. But Jimmy kind of gets... Jimmy's like, no! Don't say it! And then he's like, your grandfather didn't build this house, man. I know. I I went and I saw the paperwork. And he's like, my grandfather did build this fucking house. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And he just storms out. He's like, we're done. I'm done with this. And, uh... Then everyone leaves being like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't know, if I had been there, I would have been like, oh, that was pretty good. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'd just be like, was that a real performance? I, I, I would have also probably been on the same page as you, but I know a lot of, like, people would have, would have been like, what the fuck was that? That that was a weird <laughs> play, man. Um, But yeah, so basically, uh, downstairs... Jimmy, you know, talks to his dad as everybody's leaving. And Jimmy is like, you know, I've been telling that lie to myself for so long. Um, I began to believe it. And his dad's obviously still in denial. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? And he's obviously still not willing to admit that his the father didn't build the house. And he kind of storms out. Uh, and yeah. So, everybody leaves. Uh, Monty leaves, too. He goes back home with uh, his grandpa. And uh, Jimmy kind of, like, waits it out. Eventually leaves. He talks to uh, his auntie one more time. And she kind of, like, you know, lays out the same feeling that everybody seems to be feeling at this point. Where it's, like, she kind of shared the feeling of, like, Oh man, you know, this place really felt like it was ours, but just like that, it wasn't, you know? 
and it sucks, but you know, you kind of got to just move on. And so he, Jimmy weaves and he goes and he finds, uh, Monty who's outside on the docks again. And, uh, they like make up and they invite, uh, you know, Jimmy back into, uh, you know, their house and he stays one more night. Who watches TV. This time he's like up sitting on the couch. So you can tell he's, you know, they're making an effort to include him more. But he still doesn't really look satisfied. You know, he still looks like he's miss- missing something. Um, so, yeah. Uh, he leaves a note in the middle of the night. Basically thanking Monty for being his best friend and that he couldn't, he apologizes because he couldn't think of a way to properly say goodbye. Um, and yeah. And he gets in a boat. <laughs> gets in a boat and rows away and Monty's just kind of left there, uh, alone. And it's kind of a bummer ending. Like, I, like, it, it feels like freeing, but it also feels like really sad. I don't know how to feel about the ending. No, I, I feel sad about it, but I, you know, I like sad endings, so. Um, but yeah, that's the last black man in San Francisco. Um, and yeah, I looked up, uh, in one of the interviews I was watching with them, they kind of explained what the title meant to them. And it, it's obviously not a literal title. Um, there are clearly multiple black people they're in the movie. Clearly, as a, yeah, like there, there are two main characters. They're both black. Like that's obviously more than one man. And so most of the supporting characters are black too. So I was just like, obviously, yeah. Um, but it's not. Um, what I heard from them, I wouldn't know because I'm not from San Francisco, so I couldn't personally comment on it. But apparently, like, San Francisco used to have, uh, like, just a lot more, like, black communities in general. But nowadays, when you go there, they're kind of confined to these, like, specific neighborhoods. And, uh, like, when you're walking around, like, the main parts of San Francisco as a black man, it, you know, there's not very many around, so it literally feels like you're the last black man in San Francisco. Um, and I thought... Yeah, I thought like, was... even though I haven't... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna... Go ahead, I already forgot what I was... Even though I haven't been to San Francisco, like, I'm well aware of the growing amount of gentrification around the fucking country, and that's... Yeah. You know, gentrification is a form of, like oppression that rich people use to segregate uh, wealthy white people from people of color that are less fortunate because they've been placed into these places where they can barely afford the rent because everywhere around them is going up. So they're forced into these little, you know, like their own little towns where everywhere else is just getting nicer and more expensive and all the other stores will be nicer and getting more expensive so they they spend more money on all their food and all their bills so they can still only afford to be here and it's just you know it's just another form of segregation it's happening everywhere oh yeah for sure and yeah like I I like this movie because it's more than just like the racial stuff too because it's 
it's also just like this tale of just like fucking friendship just like pure pure friendship you know wholesome and there's it's a tale of friendship it's a tale of loving your city even if you hate it because there's a line where he's like oh, you yes. can't hate it unless you love it a couple girls on the bus oh. who are shit talking San Francisco at the very end and he's like yo yo you can't hate it unless you love it you know uh, one of those girls is one of the main characters from the movie Ghost World, which uh, oh, Joe Talbot is like. Is, it's like one of his favorite movies, apparently. I haven't seen it. I've, I've honestly, there have been a couple times where I've almost picked it for the podcast. Um, I didn't recognize her, but I've seen like obviously who stars in the movie. But interesting. I didn't. I didn't make that connection when I was uh, watching it. Huh. That's cool. Um, but there's also there's also this theme that is mostly exemplified with Montgomery throughout the movie where he's like trying to... He obviously has trouble socializing, but he also has trouble with who he is because he's obviously like a playwright and he's a lot more emotional than a lot of his peers around him. So there's this idea that's always like forming in his head is like, is he a genuine like black man? You know, like that's that's one thing. That's that's why later on he's like, we can't just put ourselves into these fucking boxes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I really like like that part of the movie. Um, like the scene where, uh, like immediately after he's like watching the group of guys outside of his house and he's like practicing uh, the N word in the mirror, <laughs> trying to make it sound more like yeah. genuine. Um. <laughs> yeah. He starts screaming it. <laughs> oh gosh. But yeah, but no, this movie was fucking fan- fucking amazing. Oh, absolutely. Like I I remember like seeing just a shit ton of people like I didn't see very many people talking about it last year, but like anyone who did was saying like holy shit, this is like movie of the year and I had to check it out. And it's definitely in my like top three, um, I I am having a hard time picking my number one for last year. There's so many good movies last year, but this yeah. is definitely up for a contender for number one. This was a fucking fantastic movie. Um, this is like my second full time watching it. Um, I've I've seen like I've gone back and like watched clips here and there before. Um, but yeah, no, it's just a wonderful movie. Um, and no, blew me the blew me away. That I know we didn't men, mention it much throughout the movie, but the house. Oh my god, that house! That house is amazing. Yeah, beautiful. Like holy shit! Like, god damn. I like. I wish they still built houses like that. That would be nice, but probably also very expensive. I don't know. Probably, yeah. Those houses tend to have like lots of uh, bells and whistles in them that seem a bit uh, oh, superf- <laughs> fucking up my vocabulary. Superfluous. Yes. I got you. I got you. I got you. Oh, thanks, brother. Oh. oh. Um, I gave this movie a ten. Oh. 
I think I've given it a nine in the past, but I think I'm gonna bump it up to a ten. Yeah, I fucking love this movie. Yeah, honestly, both this week and last week, oh, just one movie just fucking blew me away. <sighs> Obviously, I'm talking about the Chooper from last week. Oh yeah, no, the Chooper was a fucking masterpiece. I, I don't think cinema's topped it since. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, don't forget that not next week, but the week after, we're going to be doing another horror, uh, director deep dive. Yep. Uh, that one's yours, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I have my pick, but I'll talk to you about it in a second. Okay. Um, what's your uh, classic pick this week? All right, I'll give you a choice. They both have the same uh, leading actor. They're both horror movies. I, but um, yeah. So hey, my movie is also a horror movie. Ooh, that's good because I, I was kind of planning on going on like a horror bender this week. So um, yeah. So pick either P or F. Is one of these like really bad? Are you gonna be mad at me I, if I, I pick one? I've of seen these? one of them. And I haven't seen the other. Um, they're both kind of like Let's middling go. movies, but they both got like pretty good oh. performances in them, I think. Oh. At least I've heard from the one. But the one I've seen is definitely really good. Let's go with P. P, good. That's the one I wanted you to pick. All right. It's a movie called Parents. <laughs> Why did you just pick it? Parents. Oh, the one with uh, Randy, Randy Quaid. Quaid. Uh, yeah, I remember. I've been meaning to watch it. Yeah. Um, I think it's about time you do. Uh, and the other movie is, in case you're curious, I'll probably end up watching this one too. We don't have to talk about it on the podcast other than like a brief bit, but, um, was going to be the Frankenstein movie he starred in for TNT that came out in 1992. Do you, do you want to just do that one too? If you want to do both of them, I'm down. Yeah, I'm down. All right. Yeah. Uh, Randy Quaid. Three movie one. Double feature. Oh. And is that one supposed to be not good? Um, I, I, I don't think it's, like, supposed to be, like, one of the worst adaptations out there. In what, fact, what, is it just called Frankenstein? Yeah, it's Frankenstein 1992 on IMDb. Um, yeah. If you look up Randy Quaid Frankenstein, it'll pop up. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I uh, it's I guess it's probably going to be pretty middling. I know it accurately adapts the novel to a certain extent, more so than a lot of other adaptations do, but it still obviously doesn't fully adapt the novel. Um, as do we know where we can find Frankenstein 1992? I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I personally own it on DVD. Um, okay. This might be one you have to like kind of look for. I'll find it. I'm I'm good at that. Yeah. It it should be decently popular. Uh James Rolf talked about it like maybe like 5 years ago, so I'm sure that probably breathed some life into it at the time. That's how I discovered it, so It looks like if I really need to I can buy it on YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah, just make sure oh. don't get it mixed up with the uh, Robert De Niro one that came out like shortly around the same time. 
Okay. Well, I think it said the right uh, director, David Wicks, but yeah. I, I will. I'll watch the trailer or whatever okay. and make sure it's the right one. Um, okay, and my book, my, my pick is from 1997, the year I was born. Ooh, me too. Uh, you too. Uh, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, are you familiar with the director Kiyoshi Kurosawa? Mm, not off the top of my head. He's a Japanese film director. He's um, he's known kind of as the he's he's a big horror movie guy in like Japanese horror right now, and he has been for the last like twenty five years. But this is considered by most to be like his best, and that's called it's called Cure. Oh, okay. Um, Nineteen ninety seven hour and fifty one minutes. It's available on the Criterion channel. Okay. Parents is available to stream on Amazon Prime or for free on Tubi TV. And uh, Frankenstein is going to be a little tricky to find, but it is available to buy, apparently, on YouTube. Epic. But, yeah. Um, it should be a pretty epic episode next week. Yeah. Uh, Got anything to say to the fucking viewers before we sign off? Uh yeah, just uh, tell your grandparents. Um, thank you for listening oh, in Peru and Germany. Are we back to letting grandmas listen? Um, we we you lend them back in. No, I'm I'm still not over the Joe Biden thing. I blame America's grandmothers for that. So, <laughs> fuck you, grandma. The grandpas are okay, but the grandmothers. I know they all voted for Biden. They just couldn't resist his manly charm. They just saw his pictures from when he was, like, 20, and they're like, well, he was hot. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, all right. What? All right, well, I guess we'll time to sign off. Thanks for watching, and continue to live your life and be happy, but don't die. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Bye. Adios.